My name is Jeff Kiley. McKinley Mutual Aid has asked me to be as a part of the team and help with these town halls to help with the conversation. And uh, what we're going to be doing this evening is mostly listening from you all. And um, the, go the goal of all of this, of the surveying and the interviews and of these town halls is to get a really clear understanding from all of you about how the community, our community in the Gallup and McKinley County area, how we responded to the COVID pandemic. Were there gaps in services, for example? Um, were uh, there barriers to our livelihood, barriers to uh, getting back to work in places where we were accustomed to working? Uh, were there ways in which we saw or experienced discrimination or mistreatment on the basis of, of race or other factors? Um, and were there barriers to learning for ourselves, for our children and grandchildren? Um, what were those barriers? So what we're, what we're looking to understand is in what ways did the system work and in what ways did the system not work? And in what ways were there gaps in meeting the needs of people during this extraordinary year um, in which everyone was affected by the COVID-19 virus and we were all affected by the protective and restrictive measures that needed to be put in place. Um, and under those conditions of stress and crisis, how did some communities arise and how did some agencies and individuals and contributors, how did they arise to serve? And then even in that process of serving and bringing relief to people, what kinds of barriers and gaps did we see? So we have uh, quite a few people on the call. So right now we're going to go ahead and open it up to you, to all of you. So Kyle, uh, are you ready to go? Yes. And so um, just to answer the first question, the challenges of um, experiencing COVID-19, uh, given I live here in Shiprock, we, um, I have to travel over to the, to the border town, which is Farmington, New Mexico. And so just playing it safe, following uh, safety protocols, wearing a mask and so forth, that it was very much seen as a uh, very dis discrimination um, from all walks of life, especially uh, the outsiders. And so we've had, in a sense, um, pro-Trump people not wearing a mask and proudly waving um, the, the capital T flag and, and even just telling indigenous people to go back where they're from. And it's just very radical that such people are not educated to understand that because of the Navajo Nation, they have luxurious homes, they have foreign vehicles, that they have two, three-story homes. And so it's just insane how um, everybody just referred to their own during a time of emergency. And it's even during a time of such an emergency that you can truly find out whose colors stand out. And so 
So you had people, families that live in rural communities in the Navajo Nation that make a trip to Farmington twice a month, once a month, and they buy large quantities of food, especially given that transportation communication is is a rare essential for them. And so it was just crazy to see that um, people were reacting to indigenous people uh, making themselves known and shopping at the grocery stores, at the warehouses uh, to buy uh, food, not only for their families, but even food for their animals. And so it was just crazy. And so um, I forget the other questions that were proposed. Um, Kyle, so you're talking about a couple of issues, which is fantastic. You're talking about some discriminatory behavior, uh, and you're also talking about maybe some barriers. So the, the four questions are basically about gaps, gaps in services. So people who need to be served in one way or another by food, by supplies, medically, people that need to be served, but there are gaps in those services being available to them. So that's one question. Another one is just barriers to employment, you know, being laid off and not being able to come back on. Then the third one is about mistreatment and discrimination. And the fourth one is about barriers to education, barriers to learning. So those are the four pieces. Okay. Yeah, well, as far as employment goes, I can truly understand that families have bills to pay, um, everybody has to eat. And so I feel that it really opened everybody's eye as far as how to be more sustainable in the way we live, even to change our lifestyle, even to cut down on high processed foods. And you can't really um, eat quite healthy if you're eating at McDonald's all the time. And so I feel that it provided an opportunity for people to remold themselves and understanding that there's there's some resources available to us. Um, one being that the, the land, especially farmland, uh, the river, uh, the mountains. And so I feel that it made, a, made it apparent for those that are farmers, ranchers, or even just have that family knowledge or heritage to improve these practices and upgrade themselves. And so I feel that even just as a, I'm a farmer myself. And so I, I truly wanted everybody to understand the difference between food sovereignty and food security. Overall, we want healthy access to food, but those two things are a major difference. You could have food security if you had a McDonald's on every block, but true food sovereignty is if you have a community garden in every in every every valley. And so that's what I would love to see is farmlands being operated by every chapter house on the Navajo Nation. And, and just speaking to all walks of life that we need to start somewhere, whether it's baby steps, including a micro garden, an outdoor garden, or even just high production with the farm. And then you got ranching, whether it's cows, sheep, chickens. And so all of these opportunities are there. They've been there, but we've had been very much distracted 
And so I feel that food is another form of currency and especially this knowledge because you just seen a, a high rate of firearms, ammunition flying off the shelf as well as the toilet paper. And so people were, were ready to, to break out and fight each other and even in a sense start, um, start robbing each other. And so everything was just very crazy as, as the months progressed with COVID-19. And just to speak a little off note, within the Shiprock area, there was also a hemp and marijuana production happening as everybody was practicing safety protocols. And we had the Navajo Nation had a curfew. And so with the hemp and marijuana operations, we had a high rate of missing and murdered indigenous people. Some of their workers were youth teenagers that were drugged and sexually harassed and so we we had to do something as well the large amount of downfall happened in 2019 in, in 2020 and so again i just appreciate everybody's time in the space thank you Thank you, Kyle. And I'm hearing that kind of double-edged theme that it went crazy, lots of dangers and lots of new stresses, but also maybe the silver lining that maybe we're waking up to new ways of looking at things or going back to, to, to ways of looking at things to support ourselves going forward. So thank you for that. Who else would like to raise your hand now and, and, and speak next. Okay, Eric, is that really, is, is that really a hand? Okay, gotcha. Okay. Um, so the one thing with um, Captain Services is like, here in Theroux, there was like, a, in Theroux we have a high rate of um, suicides. And so the one thing that like, providing health care for people who Again, have to either drive or drive somewhere, or um, get in contact with, like with um, online services. And a lot of people here do not have online services because, again, the Navajo Nation is really lacking in um, kind of like uh, kind of like the digital the digital world. The one everybody is now um, really is like it's the norm now for everybody. But for the Navajo Nation, it's something that's still lacking. And so that's also one of the things that we're it's, it's, it's a really big gap. And also like for food too, a lot of people do not drive. And so I'm, I'm, I'm actually really grateful for um, Crystal for doing McKinley Mutual Aid uh, food box runs. And so, you know, being part of it and actually seeing what goes into it and actually driving to people's homes with these huge box boxes that have dry goods and produce and just seeing how happy people are. And just like the way Kyle said, um, it'd be nice if there was a way for us for especially like people to be taught how to uh, grow like their own small garden and also like what can you grow in a desert in, in an area like this because again you really can't grow like food that uh, like food that really need a lot of water um, again it's, it's, it's figuring out what 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 can we grow and to help sustain people like in certain times of the year um, 
Yeah, so and also education-wise too, education for us, like, it, it felt like it, it became very hard for students to learn and having to do this online. And we see the struggles with parents, we see the struggle with kids, the fact that they don't want to, they, they don't want to do this anymore. Because, um, you know, like with our program, we kind of like do a little small uh, version of an educational uh, system uh, when we do Story Garden. And the fact that, you know, the kids want to be with like other kids, communicate and be social, and they can't do that with um, like doing things online and that makes it also very difficult and uh, having parents to become like teachers to teach the kids to make sure like they're there and this also puts kind of stress on them as well because again they can't cope with um, telling their kids to constantly you know be on the computer be on the computer but yet they have like things to do they have jobs to do they have um, like a list of things to do outside not not in a way kind of like being um, teachers, which again is very hard to do. So again, I know there's a lot more, but that's just maybe what I can um, put it, put into the questions. Thank you, Eric. And as you have other ideas that come up, for sure, uh, let, let us all know. Thank you. Who's next up? Alvin, Alvin please. Oh, yeah, thank you for giving this up opportunity to respond um, identifying gaps and services. Um, one of the things that um, in response to COVID and the pandemic uh, was in the shortage of housing in, the, in our communities. Um, we, as you know, that's been a real, always been a major issue in, in our community. And we have multiple families and multiple generations. The strength that we had and able to able to do that. But then when this pandemic hit, that's one of the reasons where some of our cases um, got, got more our numbers high and responded to that. So one of the gaps that I had identified I mean, was, was the alternative care site. Uh, <clears throat> so I know that the nation was able to get hotel rooms in Gallup or in Chinle and Shipwreck to set up the uh, alternative care sites for people that had been uh, confirmed cases for COVID. Um, but then again, you know, traveling through there, trying to access those services was difficult. I mean, first time I heard about that was uh, the um, one of the Pueblo tribes in New Mexico at you know, the Buffalo Thunder Hotel and Casino. That's where they were using as an alternative. Um, but then in our own communities, we didn't really have a place to go to to uh, put people up while they're recovering or, 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 or isolating themselves and families. So it, it involved getting the whole family, getting the case in that process and you know, trying to get them isolated in their own homes. Uh, the lack of bathroom facilities, we have a lot of single bathrooms. Uh, in our homes now, we don't have the American standard homes of two and a half baths in our homes. So it was difficult to isolate them, families isolate themselves, a family member to isolate themselves in their homes. So that was some of the things that we were dealing with when we were trying to respond to COVID. Thank you. Thank you much, Alvin. Wilhelmina, please. Yate, uh, Nana. Aro uh, Shea on our children's education, Iba Distinso. 
talk about our children's education. Um, our indigenous and minority children, I think, were greatly impacted by this COVID when it first started, um, especially with them just, you know, from not going to school after spring break, not going back and then just going to online um, when the, the new school year started. Um, so there was a lot of gap and challenges for our, our children, um, limited internet access. Some of them didn't have no internet at all. Uh, sharing of the technology, because I know that a lot of our families have big families and um, several children in the same household and are only issued one laptop when maybe three or four children had to be online all at the same time. Um, and then there was also, you know, paperwork versus online learning. Some of our um, children in the uh, rural areas and our tribal schools uh, were sent home with paperwork and some were able to get online and communicate with their teachers and other students. So that was very, it's still challenging now um, so with the school suit that I'm involved in, um, uh, late this year in 2020, we had filed what they call a technology motion, uh, asking the court to give us relief for the state's failure um, to provide essential technology to our at-risk public school students. And um, that hasn't been ruled on or been discussed yet. There's a hearing coming up this week and we'll see how that goes. But I know that uh, there's a lot of changes that came about through the legislative session. Uh, so just, you know, I know that there's a, a lot of parents and a lot of children that I've heard from that have been really struggling um, through this pandemic with the, um, with, you know, getting online learning, education and all that, and our children are falling behind. And some are not as fortunate as others, um, especially for those that live in like Gallup in town where there's internet access and um, those that are able to get, um, you know, technology versus our children that are in the rural areas where inter some places don't even have access to internet at all. And, um, so I just wanted to kind of just touch base on that um, for now, and then we can go into a, a deeper discussion on on those uh, challenges and barriers for our children. Aikeha. Aikeha, thank you. The, the floor is open, the screen is open for anyone else who would like to share your thoughts on uh, gaps and barriers. Uh, any of the questions involved, because we have so many people, I'm going to uh, encourage you to just share your experience across all four of the ma major questions we're asking uh, about gaps in services, uh, barriers to employment, experiences with mistreatment or discrimination, and barriers to, to learning and education. So uh, please, uh, Chris, um, uh, you're up next. Hi, yes. everyone. So yeah, I just wanted to highlight something, you know, that we all discussed and, you know, it was uh, something that, you know, was hard for mutually to work around to. And that was the, um, the uh, stall out in Gallup where they blockaded um, all of Gallup. And, you know, it was just the Gallup citizens and, you know, they, they stopped everybody from coming into town. Um, I just, you know, I, 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 excuse me, I understand the reasoning, but I think the way that it was rolled out and the way so suddenly it was um, put in place was uh, an act of, uh, you know, 
more more so of the discrimination than it was of protection it felt like uh if the city of gallup had you know offered aid instead and told people you know gallup's not open today but we have a food box for you um that would have been a lot different uh and understandable um i just think that the way it was done and the way the city kind of um treated our, our indigenous friends and family uh, was really, really, um, really bad and really in poor taste for everything that we've been through and everything that we bring into the city of Gallup and um, everything that we we feel our families, you know, suffer from, you know, we we also feel the same joys uh, of having the same uh, community because Gallup is a lot greater than just Gallup. It's called Greater Gallup because, you know, Gallup is uh, in the hearts of a lot of the, the communities of like Sayato and Manulito and uh, Chechacha and all over the place. You know, we're, we're all in this together. And at a time when we really needed to be all in it together, it felt like we were being told to go home and, you know, we can't help you. Um, just like uh, our relatives and our homeless relatives all the time on the streets, you know, when they go to people in Gallup and they're asking for help, you know, we just turn them away and, you know, ignore them and act like they're not there. Um, it just seems like it seemed uh, our system when we needed it most for aid um, kind of failed us. Um, but that was the only thing I kind of wanted to, to touch on. Thank you, Chris. Um, if I could ask just a real quick uh, add on question. You're talking about the way people were treated. Was it just the blockade itself or were there incidences of mistreatment or harsh communication or exclusionary behavior or was it just the blockade itself? I think there was also, you know, the the stuff that happened on the personal level, but on the system level too, you know, um, with the the... With how they were informing people, uh, it didn't seem like it hit the community. As a person from the Health Alliance and the Health Council, you know, none of my service providers or, you know, anybody was made aware, you know what I mean, of things that were going to happen intimately, uh, including the hospital. I think even the hospital was uh, told last minute. Um, of the of the blockade and then also just on a personal level I think a lot of people experience that thing of like natives you have COVID or you know all you res rats have COVID so you should go home or things like that and dealing with, with that kind of um, kind of um, not outright discrimination but just kind of that level of of, uh, of uh, treating people I guess you would say whereas you know um the city always talks about, you know, Indian capital of the world and we love our Native American relatives and, you know, we all want their business and everything. Um, but when it comes in a time of need, that 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 companion or that mutual companionship or mutual um, camaraderie wasn't there that we 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 greatly value in Gallup sometimes when we've hit some of the hardest things in our lives. Thank you, Chris. That was very, very helpful. Um, Althea, and then Alvin again. Althea? Yes, um, hello, this is Althea Yazi. Um, I work um, um, a member of the Strong Families of New Mexico, also the Forward Together Action. And um, last year, after legislative session, um, this when the COVID happened, and um, I went upon ourselves to go and team up with um, London's Sosie and the pantry to help deliver food 
in rural areas. And he sent his way out to rural areas, <clears throat> out in um, Ketlachi to meet up with some people, all the way up to Bold Canyon to meet up with people. And um, it was sad to see people out there that lived in their own cars, that lived in um, vans, little cars. And um, we were sending food to these people. And one day we were up in Bull Canyon and the people there told us that they wished they could go down to the chapter house to see um, to see the Navajo Nation president giving out stuff there. And I was like, why, you know, why, why didn't you guys go down? And they said that there's no transportation. We had no transportation to get down there. So we took it upon ourselves that we went down to um, Sheep Springs chapter where um, President Nez was and the people there were distributing food. And there I saw, you know, you know, tons of cars up to cars. When I was telling them, you guys preach, stay home, stay home. But yet you want families to come to the chapter house to see you deliver food. And that was one thing I did not like. A man lived only a, a half a mile from the chapter house. He literally walked to the chapter house, wanted some food. They turned him away because he did not have a vehicle. Now you tell me why couldn't one of them give this man a ride back to his house with his food? And this is what the President Nez did not see. He doesn't see these things and he expects families to go on on um, the web to get on Facebook to know where they're distributing food when people in these rural areas don't even have electricity, to even have internet, to even have a cell phone to see what is going on. That was so hurtful to me. And we even went out to Sand Springs or yeah, Sand Springs. I didn't even know we had a sand spring. People out there living in rock rock houses, living in chaos, houses made out of wood. And the chapter presidents do not see these things. We went to deliver food out of Brim Hall. This whole road was washed out. I don't know how many days that was washed out, but I put it on social media and I made sure that that chapter house got that road fixed. There is a lot of stuff that goes on behind these closed doors. I've been an advocate for healthcare for the last four years for the whole state of New Mexico, trying to give families Medicaid. I was out there finding families making only 25 cents, 25 cents over the legal limit and cannot get help. One's going to school and working. The other parent is trying to go to school or has a job, but yet one of those parents has to quit their job or literally quit school just to get help. And every time these students pass a grade, get higher in their education, the rent goes up. Why is that? Their income starts getting higher. They want a good income to support their families, but yet, they cannot do it. 
this is why I, my oldest son ended up moving back because his wife is getting her bachelor's. And all because she got her associates. Her rent went all the way up to $800. She could not afford that on her salary at being a, um, a preschool teacher's assistant. And that just really hurts because I see all these struggling young families trying to get ahead. And the way this, the way our senators, the way our presidents and the way everything is going, none of us is going to get ahead if we don't start speaking up. I see it everywhere. I talk about our, our elders getting help, our elders getting health care. I've even tried to push for solar to get these um, um, solar um, for the elders for their medical assistance. That didn't work. Now I lost my Nelly. I actually lost my mom a few months ago. My mom went through the COVID. My brother went through the COVID. And that's why I stood up and started helping people distributing food so they don't have to get out of their homes and get infected. I see a lot of this. I even pushed for the census. A lot of people weren't counted because they did not know what the census was about. It was hard. We even got people to register to vote. We even got people to vote. And it was hard when you go and vote when you don't hit, have enough ballots at the chapter houses. What happens to people then? Not enough people vote. So it's just, you know, me speaking of what I saw, what I experienced. And, it you know, it really hurts me to see our Native people our relatives, people of all races, like I always said, we pushed for this health care. The COVID was not racist. It killed everybody. All races it killed. It wasn't racist. So why should our health care be racist on these people? Um, you know, that's just my thoughts. And I just hope, you know, everybody would see what I saw. Thank you very much, Althea. And uh, I think Alvin had his hand up, and then I think I see Amanda. So Alvin and then Amanda. When we were talking about the uh, discrimination and things happening in Alberta towns, you know, the, the, the part people say that they were told, you know, go back to the reservation, go back to the COVID, don't, don't come to the town. And... <clears throat> That that was just a lot of, I guess, the fallout that happened from um, our nation reporting our cases, the numbers that we're having, and how many people have gotten these cases and all that, and the reactions from Border Town. I mean, and like people are saying here, it, it doesn't discriminate. It just goes whoever gets it and get, gets it. And, and then back in our own communities, you know, there's all the blame game that we're, we're always playing as well amongst ourselves. So we oppress ourselves in that process of doing these things as well. We learn that through all the uh, um, institutional oppressions that we've learned about. So those are some things that, that, that has happened. Uh, I mean, even a reporter saying that they were going to shoot now if they had COVID and someone crazy person saying that, you know, it, it really puts uh, a real stress and trauma effect on their 
communities and, and, our, and the Navajo people that have experienced those or indigenous people. Just because we lack the infrastructure to respond to it, and we've always had the health disparities that we were dealing with. COVID brought out that in real life, and you know, our indigenous people, the ones that have suffered from this disease and this virus, more with in terms of mortality rates that we have. I think uh, some at an adjusted rate of 100,000, we were like 2,000 versus uh, non natives that were like around 500. So, you know, this really brought out a point in the health side of it as well. Thank you. Thank you, Elvin. Uh, let's go to Amanda and then Brianna. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I would like to talk a little bit about the COVID-19 um, relief packages. Um, not only have I, did I notice that with the, um, what, Navinate or the president, nomination president was doing, but I also witnessed it um, with the ethyl branches group um, where they, I think it just depends on where they're um, providing these food packages. Um, but I've actually seen um, people get turned away for being on foot too. And um, they were told to come back with a vehicle and sometimes it, it, it would, um, end up turning into a heated argument. And then um, the person for the Ethel Branch group, they would threaten that they call the police if they don't leave the premises. But I could um, also relate to why those individuals were heated because they were um, probably needing the food. Um, I had seen that um, on, on my end and also with the St. Mary's um, food distribution on the Arizona side. Um, my sister lives in Arizona and um, I'm her ride because she doesn't have a vehicle. Um, and with that too, some families were being turned away because some some people will literally um, bring like maybe one or two other family members um, to, to these events so they can get their care packages. However, um, on one or two occasions when I took my sister, I noticed that um, some of these families of the, um, some of these vehicles, they were only told, well, it's only for one household member. We can't cover your families that are in the vehicle, other, the other households that are represented in your vehicle. So that kind of um, made it really difficult for um, several families that I've, I've seen too. And um and then also um, my work is around um, birth work and then also breastfeeding advocacy. And um, what I have noticed, and I don't know if you all paid attention to um, some of the headlines that had um, occurred, like I think at the beginning of the pandemic, um, Loveless Healthcare Center in Albuquerque, um, they were literally discriminating with their birthing clients. And a lot of it had to, uh, what was happening was that they were discriminating against, um, it sounds more specifically to um, against Navajos. And what they were doing was um, they were segregating by, I believe it was either area uh, zip codes when they were having patients that were being flown out to Loveless, what was happening there was um, these families, um, mother, um, the birthing parent and then also the 
the baby being separated, um, even though their tests were coming back um, COVID negative. Um, but based on their area or zip codes, they were being separated. And some of these mothers um, were wanting to breastfeed and to separate them at birth. It's not a good thing for breastfeeding. And I know a lot of um, parents, birthing um, parents have wanted to breast, um, breastfeed their babies because um, they were noticing that the formula shelves were going um, empty. And yet um, this hospital was making it even more difficult. And if, if the baby's not breastfeeding within those early days, then by the time, and if they were giving the baby's formula right off, by the time mom and baby got home, the baby usually does not want to breastfeed and they prefer a bottle and they prefer formula over mom's milk. So um, in, in that way, they really, um, I, I believe that they cause these families to, um, they cause them undue hardship where they could have, instead of segregating them by their um, area code or their zip codes, they could have at least supported them and made sure that they were okay. Um, because one of the things that they do um, for birthing parents in the hospitals is they do um, give COVID tests to make sure that they're, um, that they're negative throughout their stay. And, um, and, but they really had no grounds in, in doing that um, segregating, um, the segregation that they did at the time. Um, and then also um, due to the lack of trust within the local hospitals, there has been a rise of families wanting and requesting for home birth options. And then also um, some families are wanting more of the doula birth support option. And um, however, the hospitals are there again, only allowing maybe one support person in um, to, help the, to help the families um, or to help the, the birthing person that's in labor. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot of um, those things that I had, I had noticed on my end um, as far as, because um, I work, me and um, my group, which is the members of the coalition, and then also the doulas within the doula collective, they work closely with the communities. And um, a lot of the times you do hear um, the feedback for like what they're encountering in their community and what they're seeing and what is worrying them. And a lot of them, um, when I did the two, uh, three uh, virtual support um, during the lockdowns, they did mention how um, they were upset at how um, Gallup locked down. And um, I know that there was some individuals, not particularly my clients, but there were some individuals that literally did have appointments in Gallup, but the state police and the National Guard were turning them away. And some people had like, um, I know, prescription pickups in Gallup. And they were being turned away. They were told that they needed to get, um, I think eventually they figured it out. But I think event, um, at the beginning, it was just not, it wasn't um, humane what they did. And um, it was um, kind of just, you know, it, it, was, it was a scary time for everyone. And, um, but also just dealing with um, my, my clientele, um, one of the things is that we also know is that when a family, especially one that is in labor, a person um, is laboring, stress and anxiety can actually lengthen her labor. 
and uh, make it a little bit harder for her to birth. So we're trying to figure out ways to create um, and ease up their anxiety and then also their fears to to um, so they'll they'll have a healthy birth and also um, a better breastfeeding experience. Very, very important experiences that you're sharing. Thank you so much. Kyle, uh, let's get you back on because you froze on us and maybe you're unfrozen now. Yeah, 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 I'm good to go. And so um, I would just want to quickly recap about uh, the whole COVID-19 issue that in introspective, we had to redevelop ourselves with the whole COVID-19 response. And so we had started out with local leaders and then that did not work out. And so we had to branch off and uh, collaborate with Navajo Hopi COVID-19 relief efforts. And again, that did not was, was not quite successful. I don't know why it seems like just because um, I represent Shiprock and Shiprock is one of the largest communities in the Navajo Nation that Navajo Hopi had decided to serve Arizona first, but I do recognize they live more in a rural area. But again, um, I was involved in these conversations as well as the planning of logistics that Shiprock was not on the emergency plan from Navajo Hopi. And yet at the time we have helped raised over $7 million. And so DEI had to step away and we had to redevelop ourselves and work with other local leaders and some of these were tribal officials and other uh, local nonprofit organizations, and yet that had failed. And to me, it, it seems like we were dealing with crisis pimps and that certain people knew how to stir emotions within people and take advantage of people as they had reached for their wallets and taking more than their share and serving themselves first that needed that help, that needed that aid. People, families that were living with plastic bag windows, trash bag windows, people that did not have a vehicle, these people were serving their constituents, were serving their investors. And it was not right. And it just was not morally sound to me and so as an organization an activist organizer we had decided then overall to deliver these goods and so we had set out and we're a uh, very much a volunteer oriented organization and so we've had various community members come in and sacrifice their time their health, their well-being, dealing with COVID, and even just providing their vehicles to transport these goods. And so it was just a very radical time and to see such leaders act in such a way that would serve themselves first. And so it was very ugly. And to this day, I do not have full trust in certain people, whether it are local leaders or even um, certain outside visitors, individuals 
who say they are for the tribe, they they serve the people, but yet they serve themselves and they serve those that benefit them. And so I just want to quickly mention that. And then real quickly, as far as unemployment goes, the United States, the public had, had lost over $3 trillion because of unemployment. People are not going to work. And yet that just expanded the gap between the, the rich, the super wealthy, and the poor. And now the middle class has very much thinned out. And so there was 10 millionaires that became super rich. This includes Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. And yet some of these very tremendous wealthy people continue to serve themselves and people like them, but there's only a very few that are willing to get back. Uh, one of them being uh, Jeff Bezos' wife and so, or ex-wife. And so she had decided to give back some of her wealth to serve the people in the community. And so I just want to make that apparent. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, next up then, uh, Brianna. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. And I just wanted to discuss um, the first question, identifying gaps in services. And so I just kind of going off of what other people said that we, as a nation, Navajo Nation, we've been suffering this, suffering from the, from COVID-19 at a, you know, high rate. We were the highest per capita in the world, in, in the United States. However, um, we've been suffering from already just, you know, lack of infrastructure, water infrastructure, um, just lack of, you know, housing and, um, and pretty much COVID just made us realize and just exacerbated all of these, um, all of these uh, disparities that we face already. And so when it came to the media, it was just more apparent that, yeah, the, you know, the Navajo Nation faces these. However, we've been facing these disparities and health disparities for the longest time. And it was just brought to awareness because of the media and, um, and because of COVID. And so I'm just being really hopeful that people who have stepped up are realizing that the Navajo Nation has all these gaps, not only within, you know, water, but also just hospital beds, medical personnel, limited um, spectrum, such as the digital divide, um, less wireless broadband services, in which this is highly needed for telemedicine. And so for those individuals who don't have access to the internet or a laptop, then they can't access telehealth or don't even have transportation and so this could be highly needed within those um, within this population that has lack, lack of access to transportation. And so there's just so many things that the Navajo Nation lacks. And, and it's just the basic human things. And, you know, our border towns have all of these necessities, basic necessities. And it's just really sad to see that we as a nation are lacking all of this. And, you know, part of that is not the... Part of its fault is not just the Navajo Nation, but also the federal government and the treaties that our ancestors made 
For us, however, you know, lack of federal policies given to the Indigenous people in terms of, you know, things that were given to the nation. And so, yeah, we, our nation suffers a lot. And, you know, I'm just really proud that we have um, been able to, you know, overcome a lot of challenges and serve our people and, and again, you know, mutual aid is nothing new to the Navajo people or to Indigenous people. We always help their family and always um, remind ourselves of care. And so that's that's all I have for now. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Brianna. Um, let's go to Amanda. Yeah, I was as everybody was talking, um, there's some things that came to mind. I know for... Um, I had some family members that had actually came down with COVID. Um, this was like the, in the early winter of 2020. And um, when we had tried to, because you all know that Seattle Medical Center also services New Mexico patients. And um, we, and, and we, we had attempted to call the public health nurse, nurses there to um, do a um, wellness check on um, my my father and my mother-in-law. And they wouldn't go out there. Um, they All they said was, well, they're, we, we, all we can do is call them and um, question them and see how they're doing. And we had told them, well, we just would like for you to have, send someone out there um, to go ahead and just do a wellness check. And maybe you all can tell us if they need to go to the hospital. And, but they would not go out. They would not go that way. They were just saying, we'll just give them a call. And um, so what me and my husband did was we actually had to purchase our own PPE and make a trip out there. And, come to find out, you know, when, when, especially elderly um, individuals or even just um, anybody in general, when they're really, really ill with COVID-19, they do not have the energy to even go and answer their phones. And um, when we went out there, um, we were already checking up on them, but we would talk to them through the, um, through the screens and then how their voices sounded. We were kind of worried about them. And that's why we tried to call the public health nurses to come out to them and then do a wellness check. However, um, they would not, they would not absolutely not go out there. So, um, so what happened was my husband had to um, obtain like the, we, he layered up his clothes and then he put on his um, emergent, the, his mechanic coveralls and then we got him a face shield and also a KN95 and then he went in to the house and um they were not my my mother-in-law did not have the energy to even get up to answer the phones and that's why we were worried because they were not responding to our phone calls and that became a very um to me it was a barrier and I was wondering if that was what was happening for families who did not have a vehicle to go out there and check on their loved ones. And um, to me, that was just really heartbreaking. But um, my father-in-law survived and he's doing good now, but we lost my mother-in-law probably a week or about a month after that. Um, she didn't survive it. And I'm just, it just really, it really upset me or in other words, it pissed me off that they wouldn't, they 
treated them like they had the plague. And these are like healthcare professionals, the ones that didn't have at least some means on how to take care of themselves from exposure. And, and even if it just meant them going up to the house and talking to them through the window, which is what we were doing, the window screen. And it was just really disheartening and it really upset me that they wouldn't um, they wouldn't do that to to help um, make sure that some of these families that they had um, you know when they took that position it was their job to go out there and make sure that they were okay but they they, they just would absolutely would not go out there and it came down to where they lived even though their patients and say at, at Seattle Medical Center um, it became a another, I guess, a jurisdiction er, er, issue with where they were living at. So those calls ended up being bounced around between Seattle Medical Center and Gallup Indian Medical Center, which was even more frustrating. And I was thinking, you know, from that point, I was like, God, how many families are really suffering right now? And they just won't go and they don't even realize that some of our families here on the res, especially the most rural, don't have the vehicle or even don't even have um, access to phones to, um, to, to make those calls that could possibly even be life-saving. And um, that's what we had experience. And actually, I, I reached out for um, to McKinley Mutual Aid and Crystal's the one that came out um, with the food package. And I was really happy to see her um, and I thank you for that, Crystal, because it really did help. I don't know, and I'm really um, amazed with McKinley Mutual Aid and how far they went as far as um, making sure that these care packages went to the rural areas. And um, I agree with Kyle because um, I know that I've been hearing like from community members that um, our tribal Navajo Nation um, administration would not even work with the nonprofits or grassroots organization. Um, and I think if they all collaborated and partnered, it would have made things easier for everyone, you know, but they were just too busy bumping heads. And that was another thing that just really irritated me. But yet a lot of these grassroots and also nonprofit organizations were actually out there on the road um, visiting these rural families. And they were doing some of these grassroots um, people were doing on their own income, their own money, and um, very meager donations from their community to keep doing it. And um, they did what they could to watch over their communities. And I really wish there was a way to recognize all rec recognize all of them for doing that because they really went out of their way to make sure that their community and their elders were were supported. Um, but that was another thing. And another thing, too, is like um, within the school districts, um, my kids go to school within the Gallup McKinley County School District. And um, there was a couple of times where I did receive um, calls saying that my kids were not doing too great in certain classes. And then I had to literally tell that attendance person, I go, it's probably not just my kids. I said, you have to keep in mind that a lot of your students within your school district lost a lot of family members, maybe even their parents. And you're expecting them to continue just to start off right off the bat. And they're only allowed so many days off and they have to go back to school. But yet 
maybe within a week or so, they lose another close immediate relative. And then they have to try to um, move forward from that grief. And then a week or two later, they find out somebody else close to them died from COVID-19. And I said, you have to keep that in mind. And what she had told me was to go ahead and email um, the student counselor, my, my kids' counselor, and then also um, include the principal in that email. And I don't even know if where that went or if it went anywhere, but I had to um, just state that, you know, voice my opinion because with my kids, we dealt with um, my family from December into January, we lost seven close family members to COVID-19. And that's what they were um, having to um, live through during that time. And so I just, you know, I just basically had to state that. And I don't know if my email went anywhere, but um, at least I brought it to their attention. I just wanted Thank to Thank you very uh, much, piggyback. especially for reporting out to us your personal direct experience uh, with, with these kinds of things. This is really important for all of us to understand. And uh, in a moment, I'm going to turn it back over to Crystal. So, um, Crystal, I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah, yeah, Jeff, for being our facilitator today. And thank you to each of you for being here. Um, I just want to express my appreciation for everyone's stories, your experience, everything that we have gone through. I want to pray for every footstep that you take. Pray for your health, your wellness, your well-being, your happiness through these difficult times. I know it's been a challenge for a lot of us, you know, just trying to survive with our families, with our communities, with ourselves even. Yeah, everyone. Thank you. Good Thank night. You all. Thank you. Okay. Good night. Thank you. Thank Good night. you. Good night.